Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. We recorded our latest bonus episode the other night. Actually, it was election night. We thought that would be a good time to record the bonus episode because uh, we were drinking. Yes, that's right. It had been a while. I think my favorite moment was when you closed the show by informing everyone that your mouth was now larger inside than it was out. It's like that book, House of Leaves, except different. We're actually recording this episode a little bit early because we are um, planning to take our first trip since the whole pandemic thing hit and I'm I'm more than a little nervous yeah, about yeah, this. Yeah, a little anxious about it, getting yeah. more and more anxious as it approaches, but we've committed we are doing this. Yes. And so we we shall see. Yeah, yeah we're getting on a plane in a couple of days. Mm-hmm. Uh wow. Can you rent oxygen tanks and bring them with you? I don't think so. Yeah, pressurized cabin thing. Right. Yeah, probably yeah. would be would be more dangerous than anything else. Did you see the article about the guy who uh, wanted to prove that he could build weapons from stuff that he bought at the uh, airport gift store and took on the plane? No. Yeah, he made a fully operating gun out of uh, a can of Red Bull. I don't know how he did it exactly. Also made nunchucks out of dental floss and two copies of U.S. Weekly. I thought it was Us Weekly. Is it Us Weekly or U.S. Weekly? Oh, man. Oh, no. One of us is wrong again. It has been for some time. (laughs) All of our lives. Oh, well. Nanny Hoozle, what's the weirdest thing that you ever collected? Probably not weird, weird stuff, right? I mean, like body parts or things like that. I mean, no. Mm. I, I, this is very spur of the moment. Yeah, I know. I don't know. We have some pretty weird stuff right now. Well, that's true. But um, I think my like the thing that I've collected the longest that could be considered kind of weird is like vintage bottles. Mm-hmm. So I love old medicine bottles and that that's kind not of that's thing, not so. too weird though. No. I worked with a guy (laughs) in Tampa. I guess you're right. No, that's not weird. (laughs) Compared to uh, this guy I worked with, Steve, he collected toilet brushes. Oh. And not just new ones. 
Okay. Like, he, like he, had, it, how did he display them? They were just in a pile in his room. He didn't even have a display for oh, them. Oh, see, that's a his, shame. It's just weird. But he would, uh, if he saw an interesting toilet brush, like at a public restroom, he would just take it. Oh, Who does that? That's rude. Also, not very hygienic. Um, I'm going to talk about weird collections. Okay. Because it's a, it actually kind of borders on hoarding. There's a fine line between avid collector and hoarder. Yeah, I think it's got to do with, one, uh, your control over the situation. Yes. And two, how often you dust. going to start with Andy Warhol. Of course, we all know Andy Warhol, illustrator, writer, uh, film director as well. He was also quite a hoarder, but he did it with purpose. What he did is uh, he created what he called time capsules. Okay. And he got boxes that were all the same shape. And every month, stuff that was just collecting on his um, countertops and tables, he would just put them all in a box, seal the box shut, and date it, and put it in a warehouse. Inside the warehouse, there were thousands and thousands of these boxes. They all looked the same on the outside, except they had different dates on them. And uh, and I'm not sure if he did it weekly or monthly, but uh, but there were just thousands of these things. And they auctioned them off after he died. Mm-hmm. And, and some of them went for quite a bit of money, like ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000. Wow. And it was just full of stuff like junk mail, unpaid bills, and pizza crust. He, he would actually save the pizza crust and write the date on the crust. Oh, wow. And then put it in a box with a bunch of junk mail and stuff that was just cluttering up his, his countertop. That's dedication. Tape it up, date I, it, and call it uh, a time capsule. You know, I kind of can understand that thought process. Like, there's a lot of stuff that I know that if I critically thought about, do I need this thing? Right. I would say, absolutely not. But for some reason, my gut instinct is, don't get rid of this. Because as soon as you do, you will need it. So um, I totally get the idea of, well, let's just put it in a box and stick it somewhere. (laughs) In Andy Warhol's journals, he wrote that uh, he had a hard time throwing things away. Uh, He also believed that one day the things that he kept would be worth something. All right. And he was correct. Yep. In one of the boxes, they found a leaky can of Campbell's tomato soup, and the thought was that it was one of the cans that he used as a model when he drew his pop art in Mm. the 60s. But it leaked. That's a bummer. Yeah. I imagine that would be like one of those um, storage area kind of things where you just buy it sight unseen, you know, based on the date, and then you open it up and you're like, oh, this is... This is just garbage. Right. That's too bad. (laughs) And you throw it away and then find out later, oh, my God. Oh, no. I don't think you'd throw away Andy Warhol's garbage. That's my point. If if you didn't know it was Andy, that was the only way you'd throw it away. Oh, I see. Okay. If you didn't. Like, I I was thinking Storage Wars, like that show where they only kind of let them look in the storage locker but not rummage through the stuff and then they just buy it. Yeah. Kind of like that. Have you ever heard of the Collier Brothers? I don't think so. In the 30s and 40s. Two brothers, Homer and Langley Collier, lived in a beautiful brownstone in Harlem. And they, um, they were collectors, but not discerning collectors, just junk, just stuff that they would find on the street or in the alley. And this was a mansion. And they just started doing this for some reason. They were born in the 1800s, uh, 1880s, to be exact. The brothers uh, lived in this house with their mom. Uh, she died in 1929. Now, both of the boys were college educated. 
And uh, they did stay in touch with the outside world up until the point that Homer had a stroke, and that was in 1932. He was, after the stroke, legally blind. Both of them, they became increasingly isolated. Now, Homer, his health continued to uh, decline, and he he got to a point eventually where he was unable to... um, even move because his arthritis was so severe. Oh, goodness. But he did not seek medical help. This kind of gives me Grey Gardens vibes. It's very Grey Gardens kind of thing. Okay. They got water from local parks. Oh, jeez. And they had uh, somehow rigged up their car to provide them with electricity. And this was in a really nice brownstone. Langley only left the apartment at midnight, and that's when he would go shop and run errands. Only at midnight. In 1947, neighbors called the police because a a strange putrid smell wafting across the driveway from the Collier home. The authorities showed up. They had to actually crawl through a window. They couldn't get through the doors. Oh, wow. So full of stuff, just barricaded by debris. When uh, one police officer finally got into the home, he found Homer's body. Uh, There were rumors that uh, Langley had fled. They couldn't find... Langley, but three weeks later, they did find Langley. Uh, he was also in the apartment. He was only 10 feet away from Homer, but he was under just hundreds of pounds of debris and, oh my goodness. and junk. So they thought probably what happened was over the period of years that they'd been collecting this stuff, they had uh, constructed little tunnels mm. in the junk to get around, and one of them had caved in on Langley. And that left Homer alone and helpless. Yeah. So it was originally when I heard the story, I thought, you know, Homer would be the first one to, to go. And then right. Langley would just kind of like, well, okay, I'm, I'm just going to live here. Uh, but no, it, it appears as though Langley was crushed under garbage and uh, Homer just couldn't do anything to help himself. That's so sad. The probate court and the authorities, they emptied the home and they sifted through nearly 100 tons of junk. They found jars of human organs in the collection. Where did they get them? Their father was a doctor. Oh, okay. And they probably just inherited them from him. Thousands of books, a folding top horse carriage from the late 1800s. Ooh, inside their apartment. Inside their apartment. Dozens of musical instruments, yards of of beautiful fabric, an entire car chassis, among other things. But the brownstone itself was in such horrible condition, it had to be torn down just a couple of months after uh, the Collier brothers' deaths were discovered. Sure. What kind of door do you have where you can get a car chassis through it? I know. That's some... Some wide doorways. Interesting doorways (laughs) you've got there, sir. Right now, on the spot where their house was, is uh, a park named after them. Collier Park. Thomas Jefferson, a more conventional collector collected books. He spent his entire life Mm. collecting as many books as he could. In 1770, his family home, Shadwell, burned to the ground. And afterwards, in in one of his letters, he had written to a friend about how heartbroken he was over the loss of his his books. These were a big part of his life. According to uh, Jefferson, in the letter, it said, quote, every paper I had in the world and almost every book was lost. On a reasonable estimate, I calculate the cost of books burned to have been 200 pounds sterling, 
which is about $37,000 today. Wow, wow. Yeah. I've always loved and collected books oh. as well, um, until I realized what a pain in the ass it is to move and dust. With, with books. Yeah. So um, if you ha- if I had like a family home mm-hmm. that was going to stay yeah. in the family, sure, absolutely, I'd continue yeah. to collect books. But um, no, I don't want to pack those again. <laughs> Thank you. Jefferson served, of course, as ambassador to France. And while he was there, he, uh, he bought and collected thousands of books. And as he bought them, he would send them back to his home, uh, Monticello. And by 1814, he had the largest book collection in the United States. And the reason he had the largest book collection in the U.S. was pretty much because the Library of Congress was burned in 1812, the War of 1812. So at this point, Jefferson offered his books to Congress and they bought them in 1815. They paid uh, just about $24,000. That would be about $350,000 today. Then another fire broke out in 1850, and two-thirds of all, all, all those books burned up, too. Oh, no. Yeah. But after selling his books to the government, he started over again and collected until he died in 1826. Wow. He was a book lover. I guess so. There's a British television show, or there was one in the uh, late 90s, called Life of Grime. And in 1999, Edmund Tebbis achieved a great deal of fame by appearing on that television show. He was a hoarder for more than 30 years. Trebus had uh, he had a five-bedroom house, but the house was completely full of junk. His neighbors would often call um, the authorities because mm. large rats would be seen running in and out of his house. Uh, some of them would just die in the yard and they would stay there. Yeah. So Edmund was a Polish war veteran. He had lived in this house without electricity and water. And he just really loved rats? Apparently. At least he didn't mind them. He was unable to bathe or sleep in his bed because of all the junk. Well, you shouldn't bathe in your bed. <laughs> That's not. Two years after his yard was cleared by six men who came to help, it took him over 30 days using five large trucks and 11 skips. Edmund appeared on a second episode of the show, again with his yard and house filled with garbage. No, no. Took 30 days. Now, according to the TV show, his hoarding began in the 1960s. He had rooms full of vacuum cleaners and cameras. You know, he was a little more specific in his sure. hoarding. Uh, over time, his family left. His collection of items continued to get larger, he branched out from vacuum cleaners and cameras. So by 1998, there was so much junk in his house, he had to live in one small corner of his kitchen, and he had to use ladders to get in and out of his house. Health department officials uh, contacted him in 99. Uh, they came to his house and started erecting scaffolding and began to work on his home. He was not happy with that, so he threw them out. When they returned in 2001, he promised that uh, he had hired a contractor to fix and refurbish his house, but then uh, he died uh, just a few months later before any of the work could be done. And finally, Bettina Grossman. She lived at what was, at the time, a swanky hotel, the Chelsea Hotel in New York City. It's been home to uh, a number of celebrities, many public figures, but Bettina is probably one of the most famous people there. She started living at the Chelsea in the 1960s. She produced a number of pieces of art. She was an artist, and uh, they hung on the walls of the building. Now, she was there when the Chelsea was at its peak. 
It was kind of like a, a hot spot for creativity. A lot of artists and authors and actors and actresses would, okay. would stay at the hotel. But they would come and go. She just stayed there, lived there. Grossman painted for 40 years there. And uh, of course, her collection became very, very large. Much of it occupied her living space to the extent that uh, she spent more time in the hotel's hallway. Her neighbors, they tried to help. They would come and clean her apartment when, uh, when there was room to do so. But according to those who have seen her apartment, she often sleeps in a lawn chair surrounded by her works of art. Oh, wow. Now, a documentary filmmaker, Corinne Vanderborch, discovered Grossman. She thought that she would help her organize and bring Grossman's work of art, works of art, into uh, the public eye. Her film is called Girl with Black Balloons, and it talks about their relationship. And then there was another documentary called Bettina in uh, the year 2008. Does she not sell her art? Apparently, she just creates art and keeps it. Okay. That's just what she does, and to the point where her art's more important to her it's more important to have her art around her than to have a bed to sleep in. Right. Yeah. So she just fills up her hotel suite with art and hangs out in the hallway. Well, how does she support herself? Like, I can't imagine it's inexpensive to live at a hotel. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I got the impression that she was living off some sort of an inheritance. Okay. She's kind of an eccentric... Um, Air type. Yeah. All this information came from an article in Ranker. Those are uh, some more extreme cases of collecting slash hoarding. But at least they aren't toilet brushes. That's true. Which is nice, yeah. I think. I liked them all except for the, the third one. Which one was that? The the guy. It was just a story about a guy who was a hoarder, and that was sad. Like, the other stories were, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, well, this woman's an artist, and she's kind of eccentric, and this thing. And the other one was like, oh, this is Andy Warhol, and he's got this thing. And the other one was like, well, this is these two brothers, and they kind of fed off each other in this weird, like, codependent hoarding situation. Right, right. And that one was just... This guy hoarded until he died. That's cool. true. Cool. Um, I have one I didn't tell you that's even worse, if you'd like to hear it. Worse in what way? Um, <clears throat> in what it was that he uh, collected. Oh, okay. Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria. Oh, yeah. The guy who triggered the World War One. Yeah. Well, his assassination did. He collected uh, dead animals. And, like uh, just dead animals? Well, hunting trophies. Oh, okay. Yeah. He had about 275,000 What? animal heads and carcasses that he had mounted. Yeah. In fact, uh, one of the stories said like that- like a lot. He was an avid hunter. One of the stories claims that he estimated to have shot over 2,000 animals in one day. What? Yeah. It, yep. So, yeah. I mean, I don't- uh... So he, he wanted to show off about what a great hunter he was. Sure. So he had this collection of hunting trophies. And according to one scholar, visitors to Ferdinand's home had to walk carefully down the hallway for fear of being impaled by antlers. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds upsetting. Yeah. I don't think I would like that. No. I no. would have night. It's a nightmare house. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I am an avid eater, but you don't see me saving Turnip pelts all and put them all over the house. No, that's true. And now, that thing in the middle. German police said last month a homeowner in the western town of Lipstadt was surprised when he got a smartphone message from his lawnmower robot. 
It said, help, I flipped upside down. So he tootled right outside to find a thief with the robot tucked under his arm. Caught in the act, the thief dropped the robot and fled, according to police. Officers did not locate the suspect, but they are crediting the lawnmower robot's rescue to his quick thinking. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids. And they live about 3,000 miles away. And my daughter is expecting a child. And she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. 
On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Cat and Jethro live in Maine. I'm in California. Sure, we'd love to come to your place for Thanksgiving, but you'd probably ask for help with the dishes. F*** that noise. This is The Box of Oddities. David sent us a message. Hi, Cat and Jethro. Listen today to the latest drop. Excellent as always. Just a few thoughts. You mentioned the use of psychedelics in medical use. I've done a lot of research, starting with Terrence McKenna on <laughs> yeah, this. Yeah, he has. <laughs> There's a lot of interesting material on the subject. I've had a lot of stress the past few years, and I've tried uh, a psilocybin and a wachuma, which is a San Pedro ceremony. I found both useful, but the latter particularly so, as I felt it helped me reach and heal old trauma. It's well over a month ago since I experienced it, and I find it much easier to handle the things that I have to deal with. On a lighter note... On a lighter note, you mentioned Paul Stamets. You may already know that Star Trek Discovery's chief engineer is also named after him. The ship uses a strange mushroom spore drive to travel through a vast mycelial network. So the psychedelic look of the original has been replaced by a a full-on psychedelic new show. I had no idea. A couple of people had mentioned this, that uh, Paul Stamets was the name of the engineer. I didn't know that either. I am so not up to date on my Star Trek. I know, me neither. Is Shatner still on that? Annie Hoosel, what you got for me? Thanks for asking, cute butt. (laughs) In April 1817, in the small English town of Almondsbury, there was a guy working as a cobbler in his shop, and he saw a woman pass by in the street that was very out of place. Cobbling is a lost art. I would agree. You don't know many people nowadays that cobble. I would agree. Um, I remember, though, not long ago, I brought to you a pair of my boots, and I said, can we have these cobbled? And you said, didn't you find those at the dump? Please throw them away. (laughs) And so I feel like you're not as much a fan of cobbling as you pretend to be. Okay. Yeah. That could be true. So this woman was disoriented, and she was wearing exotic-looking clothes, a black turban and a red and black shawl. She had a small bundle on her arm, which contained a few necessities. Like a bindle? Uh, it, well, she wasn't. It wasn't on a stick. Okay. She was. She was carrying it, kind of like, like you would a like a wristlet. Okay. There are no bindles in this story. Well, that's disappointing. But does a does a package need a stick to become a bindle? I think so. Okay. I think so. This I think that's the definition. New information for me. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So, did you I think thought... that any small carrying bag could be a bindle? Yeah. Or not necessarily a carrying bag, but anything that's tied up in a handkerchief. Oh, okay. I totally understand what mm-hmm. you're saying. Yeah. Um, Why would they do that? It seems like if you're a hobo mm-hmm. and you have a bindle yeah. and it's on a stick and you're holding it over the back of your shoulder, sure. isn't that giving other hobos the opportunity to steal your bindle? Why would you assume the hobos would want to steal your bindle? Well, I'm not... I just think that seems a little bit discriminatory no, on your part. No. Like you're just like, oh, you're a hobo, so you must want to thieve of me. 
<laughs> no, I'm just guessing that probably when when uh, hobo is bindling, that uh, he is surrounded mostly by other bindling hobos. That may be the case, but why would that lead you to believe that he is more likely to be thieved of his belongings? Statistic- they are homeward bound. It they is- are not thievery bound. It is statistically more probable. Oh, yeah. I'd like yes. to see your sources, sir. Well, if he's surrounded by 10 hobos mm-hmm. and then one like, uh, let's say, daycare worker, it's more likely, statistically speaking, that if he is going to be robbed of his bindle, it would be by one of the other hobos. Yeah, but that's not how you create situations where you gather data is, oh, here's one daycare worker. Let's see if she's the one or he's the one who happens to steal from them. That's not how you create data, sir. You know nothing of bindles or bindle thievery for that matter. Okay, I feel like you're taking a really strong stance on this when I'm in fact you're the thievery. one who <laughs> is creating a ridiculous situation. I'm sorry, but it's not the first time, you have to admit. No, yeah. no, it's far from it. You You're, should be used to it by You are now. correct. You are correct. Bindlefee. This young woman had this bag, which was immediately stolen by a daycare worker. She was very upset and... By a daycare worker? You just threw that in there. <laughs> So this woman was speaking a foreign language and the cobbler didn't know what was up. You know, she looked weird. She sounded weird. But they were able to determine that she called herself Caribou. Locals reached out to the overseer of the poor and put her up at an inn called The Bowl, which I think is a weird name for an inn, but that's not the point of the story. And when she was at the inn, she saw a painting of a pineapple on the wall and she said, Ananas. So they thought maybe it was like some sort of Asian language. They weren't sure uh, where she was from, but they knew that it was not from that town. Since she was dressed so oddly, she seemed so out of it, and she insisted on sleeping on the floor, the county magistrate, Samuel Whirl, declared that she was a beggar and should be taken to Bristol and tried for vagrancy. How long ago was this again? What was the year? It was in 1817. Okay. So five years after Thomas Jefferson's books got burned. (laughs) That's right. During her imprisonment, a man came along named Manuel Ines or Ineso. And he said he spoke the language and he was willing to translate. So during this translation session, it was discovered that this young lady was not some European hobo. In fact, she was the Princess Caribou from the island of Javasu in the Indian Ocean. It had happened that she'd been kidnapped from her home by pirates and held captive on their ship, but she managed to escape by jumping off of the ship and into the Bristol Channel, which is how she washed up in Almondsbury. Wow. Immediately, the Worrells took Caribou into their home, and she was taken in by the town with great enthusiasm. So she, because she was so exotic and was very interesting, eccentric, if you will, she would dance for the magistrate's friends. She would display her archery skills. She fenced for the neighborhood. She would pray to her god, Alatala. And when she did this, she would usually do it on a roof or in a tree. Okay. Closer to God. You sure, know. sure. sure. Uh, quite scandalously, she also would swim naked in the lake when she was on her own. Hmm. 
Now, the townspeople were happy to take care of this visiting dignitary, and I'm sure they were a little embarrassed that they had taken her for a vagrant and had briefly arrested her. <laughs> um, she wore flowers and feathers in her hair. She began carrying a gong around on her back. A um, gong? A gong. On her back? Yeah. She... Mm-hmm. You know, she wanted to have that sound available to her. Sure. You know, whenever. You know, I get it. I, I always thought if I had like a superpower um, or if I was like a transformer, mm-hmm. it would be cool to like be able to play music from me at any point. You know, it, just any song You'd I just wanted. Transform into a 1980s guitar. More like a boombox, like wah, 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 wah. Oh, that sounds really cool. Yeah. I'd like to transform into a bindle. You want me to put something inside of you? <laughs> Wait. No. <laughs> no. No, I don't. No. Thank you. Okay. A Dr. Wilkinson identified her language using Edmund Fry's Pantographia, not familiar, but uh, he stated that marks on the back of her head were the work of, quote unquote, oriental surgeons. As I said, she's all very exotic. Everything that's going on here is a little bit confusing, but also interesting. So these kind of high end people are really enjoying having her around, showing off her, her neat skills. She would entertain audiences of foreigners and painters and craniologists. Having become something of a celebrity, she acquired exotic clothing and she had a ball in her honor, and they had her portrait painted. So Princess Caribou made the local papers, and that portrait was included. And a couple of months had gone by at this point with her living with the Worrells and enjoying the the fruits of this town's interest in her exotic nature. When a boarding housekeeper, Mrs. Neal, reached out to her local papers. Um, She recognized the woman in the picture and she informed the paper. She said that she had provided this exotic stranger with lodging some six months earlier and that her name was not Caribou, but in fact, Mary Baker. And She was a lodger who would often dance around in a black turban and speak an invented language. (laughs) Baker did not hail from the island of Javasu. In fact, Javasu is not a real place. Instead, she comes from Winthridge and had been working as a servant in this woman's home. So she was blessed with an exotic look. And she found a way to monetize that. She she found something. God bless the entrepreneurial spirit. <laughs> when uh, speaking to the landlady during this confrontation, Princess Caribou had no trouble speaking English. <laughs> Apparently, she had invented her fictitious language from just her imagination and also words that she said she had heard gypsies use. Uh, So she created this exotic character and story. Hmm. And the guy who came in and said he spoke the language, he he was in on it, obviously. That's the way that it seems, Hmm. yes. We don't know much about that guy, but it does seem as though they worked in a a a pair. A con job. Right. 
which I think is very clever and reminds me of like a Dirty Rotten Scoundrels kind of movie. In fact, they did make a movie about this woman and her escapades. In 1994, it was called Princess Caribou, starring Phoebe Cates. Oh, and Kevin Klein. No kidding. Indeed. <clears throat> I have never heard of that film, but I haven't either. But we have to watch you it. Piqued my interest. Well, this is one of the things is we were looking recently for uh, good suggestions for our Thanksgiving movies. Mm-hmm, our Thanksgiving movies are a very specific ilk. They're usually light comedies from the eighties. Yeah. We started out with Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, obviously. And, uh, obviously. and after watching that every Thanksgiving for about five years, we thought, well, let's branch out, and we went to uh, Fish Called Fish Wanda. Fish Called Wanda, and then it's a Crocodile Dundee, and Dirty so, Rotten Scoundrels, yeah, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. That that sort of fits into that uh, genre for yeah. us. It's one of the best times of the year. What did we watch last year? It was that eighties uh, Mel Gibson airplane movie. Air Con or Con Air or no? It was not Con Air. Air uh, America. Air America. Air America. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. yeah. Um, Robert Downey Jr. That was a. Wait, was Mel Gibson not in yeah, it? Yeah, he was in it. it. Yeah. yeah. He, he and wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was the yeah. both of them. Okay. Yep. One was like the dirty veteran of the the trade, and the mm. the one was the new one, the and, young upstart. Yeah. 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 Anyway, uh, 10 out of 10 would recommend. All right. So <laughs> it turned out that by by this point, Mr. Worrell had also received word from academics about Caribou's native script, which he had earlier asked for them to look into. And uh, he sent it to Oxford University for examination. They described it as humbug language. Humbug the odd marks on her head, those were scars from a crude cupping operation oh. in a poorhouse hospital in London. Uh, that procedure was intended to relieve pressure on a, quote, overheated brain in which the back of the head was shaved, the skin scarred with parallel blades, and hot glasses were applied to catch the blood. I love how they describe certain medical maladies back in that day. Yeah. Um like overheated brain. It's, mm. I'm sorry, Martha won't be joining us tonight. She has angry ears. You know, you don't really know what it is, but it <laughs> kind of sort of makes sense. There was an episode of Gilmore Girls when Lorelai had a cold and she was mad because she hates having colds, not just because it's uncomfortable, but because it's boring and everyone <laughs> gets colds. And she was like, just for one time, I would like to say, oh, I can't come tonight. I'm not feeling well. My leg is haunted. <laughs> And I always thought that that was yeah. a great line. Yep. Anyway, humbug language. The British press made quite a big deal out of this hoax, of course, at the expense of the duped, rustic middle class. Uh, but Mrs. Worrell had taken pity on this girl and arranged for her to travel to Philadelphia. So in 1817, she traveled to Philadelphia, and her last contact with the Worrells was uh in a letter that she sent from New York in November of 1817. She complained about her notoriety. It was just such a hassle to be so famous. I hate that. Uh, It appears she returned to Philadelphia until she left America in 1824 and returned to England. She did exhibit herself for a short period of time as Princess Caribou, but the act wasn't very successful. She may have traveled to France and Spain trying to pull off a similar con, uh, but soon returned to England. 
Mary Wilcox made one last appearance as Princess Caribou in a London gallery where she charged visitors a shilling to see her. Uh, The fake princess then returned to Bristol and married a Robert Baker, which, according to the history press, uh, was 10 years her senior. And she set up a business in Bedminster as an importer and seller of leeches. The end. Was there a big demand for that vocation? There was, in fact. They were used a lot for medical for procedures medical at procedures. that time. That's, that's right. Yeah, wow. so she went ahead and took advantage of that. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I know, I know. Yeah. Leeches, you don't, you don't care for those too much. So, um, yeah, that's the story of Princess Caribou, and I think that's going to be one of our Thanksgiving movies this year. Okay. Yeah, very excited. Uh, also, thanks to uh, Jasper for his recommendation of Air America. Yeah, oh, yes. And also, thank you guys who are supporting us on Patreon. We really appreciate it. We, we do, we do, we do. And we'd appreciate your suggestions of what we should watch for Thanksgiving. <laughs> yes. If you'd like to join us on Patreon, support the podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash box of oddities. You can find all the details on our website as well, theboxofoddities.com. We love you guys and we look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.